This is an Emmaus Church podcast. For more information about Emmaus Church, please visit EmmausDenver.com. So if you would stand for the reading of God's Word. We're in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, starting in verse 17, um, and through the end of the chapter. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. This is the word of the Lord. It is indeed an honor and a privilege to come and break the bread of life with you all here in person and those that are online. And I certainly am very humbled uh, to even be asked to share the word of God. I often think of myself, who am I? I'm, I'm just a sinner saved by grace and the Lord chose me not because of anything that I've done, but simply out of his grace and mercy that he had on me. And so as Aaron read the scripture this morning, and I certainly appreciate the introduction, and it was, I was thinking about how God is so sovereign, how he orchestrates things, and everyone in your life is someone that God has brought in your life for a particular reason for such a time as this. I, I, I kind of think big picture sometimes because we serve a big God, and I think all the way back to creation and God made Adam and Eve. And in those two people, he put all the DNA programming for every person that would exist throughout all of time. Think about that. Think about that. The mind of God that he made everything by speaking it into existence except for Adam and Eve that he took the personal time to make them, to mold them from dirt 
and then breathe into them the breath of life and to program into their DNA, you and I. Think about that. And then God knew what parts of our mothers and fathers would bond and make who we are for the time that we were born in, the place that we were born in, and then weave our lives together with those that we've met, that we are in relationship with, all in the mind of God, before the world was. How unfathomable is that? And so we are here today because of that, that sovereign God that he alone knows how to do all of that. Amen? And I'm thinking about this letter, Corinthians. Boy, I, it, is, it is one big letter of rebuke, is it not? I mean, there, there's more correction there than anything else. If you want to find out how not, not to be as a Christian, Corinthians is probably a good place to go. But in the midst of that is also a lot of really key doctrine that we need to understand and know as believers. Amen? And so we're in uh, chapter 11 verses 17 to 34 this morning. And the way I kind of entitled this whole, this whole section of Scripture is the correction of behavior regarding the Lord's table. Correction of behavior regarding the Lord's table, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 to 34. And I've broken this up from my understanding into four parts. Verses 17 to 22, the rebuke. Verses 23 to 26, the revectoring or the redirecting. Verses 27 to 32, the warning. And verses 33 to 34, the reminder. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we come before you, the God of all creation. Amen. The God of all wisdom. You are sovereign and you are God all by yourself. You do not need anything or anyone. And yet you spoke ex nihilo, all that is from nothing, because you're God. Father, we come to glorify you today. We ask you to move us out of the way. Help us to decrease that you may increase, that you may have the preeminence, and that you and you alone may get the glory. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would apply the word of God to our hearts and lives today. Help us not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Have your way, God, we ask right now. Teach us as only you can, we pray in the matchless name of Christ, the name that is above every name. We say amen and amen. amen. The city of Corinth was located in southern Greece. Uh, because of where it was, it was uh, a city of prolific commerce that thrived and prospered as a major trade city. Uh, not only for most of Greece, but for much of the Mediterranean area, including North Africa, Italy, and Asia Minor. Corinth had also hosted the Itsminian Games, one of the most famous athletic events at the time, the other one being the Olympic Games, the Olympian Games. Uh, one might say, in our vernacular, Corinth had it going on. Or Corinth was the place to be. 
When, when I grew up in New York, when, 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 someone was, when somewhere was the place to go and party, we'd say, that was the place to be. Even by uh, pagan standards of its own culture, Corinth became so morally corrupt that its very name became synonymous with debauchery and morale and moral depravity. Can you say San Francisco? <laughs> to a Corinthianized came to represent gross immorality and drunken debauchery. Imagine that, that the name of your city is synonymous with the worst of human nature has to offer, amen? And then comes Paul in his second missionary journey and founds a church right in the midst of the most wicked city that you can think of. Imagine that. God, God does things like that, doesn't he? And because of that, it was a big struggle for these Corinthian believers, uh, it was hard for them to fully break away from the culture. And, and much of what surrounded them seeped into the church and remained in their lives. And we would read Corinthians and see things like Paul rebuking them for not dealing with a man who's, who's sleeping with his stepmother. And then in chapter 6, we see him talking about some of you were homosexuals and murderers and thieves and, and adulterers and fornicators were, meaning God had changed them. God had removed this sin from their lives and transformed them even in the midst of the most wicked lifestyles that many of them had. They were very divisive and they, they longed to cling to a particular person. Some would say, oh, I'm of Paul or I'm of Apollos, or I'm of Cephas. And Paul would even say, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you because I don't want you saying that you're of me because it's all about Christ. And that's who you should be focusing on. One man plants, one man waters, but God gives the increase. Apollos is nothing and Paul is nothing. It's all about Christ. Unfortunately, the carnality and divisions in the Corinthian church seeped into the time that it should have been the most unity, the time of the Lord's Supper. So we see in verses 17 to 22, his rebuke. Paul said, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. He just got done commending them for other things, and he said, I can't commend you in this area. Because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. Can you imagine that? He's saying, when you come and meet together as a church, it is worse than if you had not even come at all. You might as well have stayed home. It's that bad. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, although they were calling it the Lord's Supper, but Paul says, you can't even call it the Lord's Supper. It's that bad. For in eating, one goes ahead and with his own meal, one goes hungry, and another gets drunk. Can you imagine this? We're coming together for communion, celebrate the Lord's Supper, and gluttony and drunkenness abound. 
verse 22, he says, what? I mean, he, he's, like, he's like emphatically, what? You got to be kidding me, right? Do you not have houses to eat in and drink in? You want to do all that, you, you can stay home with that. That's what Paul is saying. Or, you, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So we see there were abuses of the poor. There was elitism. There were those seeking to have the preeminence and disregards for the needs of the less fortunate and gluttony. One commentator suggests that the rich were eating their private meals at the Lord's Supper, which included both an earlier starting time and privileged portions not available to others. Another commentator asserts that divisions were provoked by the insensitive behavior of some of the social elites within the Corinthian church. So the very things that were part of this society, some of them had bought those things into the church. And so contrary to what Paul would advise in Romans 12:1, he said not to be conformed to the world, and they were being conformed to the world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind, right? Paul says this certainly did not meet God's approval. This, this commentator goes on to say that their behavior according to worldly wisdom would have distinguished some of the, the members as socially superior members of the church who were considered worthy of higher regard, respect, and esteem, but actually showed the unworthiness of the high regard, respect, and esteem since their behavior was a disgrace to the community and an insult to God. Makes me think of what James said in James chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, when he says, you're showing favoritism. When you have a rich man that comes in, you say, here, here, take the best seat in the house. And then you have a poor man that comes in, you say, here, here, sit on the floor by my feet. There ought not to be divisions and racking and stacking Amen. within the church of God. We're, the, the, the ground at the cross, foot of the cross is level. There's no higher or lower ground. We all come by the same way, by the grace of God, and not by what we have, not by who we are, not by what we've achieved, not, not by any of those things of the world. Commentator says, presumably, presumably wealthier members were going ahead before others arrived and satiating themselves, and, and perhaps they had more freedom in their schedules, and so they, they got there earlier where those that were slaves or those that were of lower regard or, or, or more demanding jobs couldn't even get there on time. By the time they got there, these folks were full and drunk. Paul says, this ought not to be. There's even a thought that they had these meetings in homes where even in the wealthy homes, there was a small dining area and maybe only about nine people got to sit. And then those that, those that weren't a friend of the host of the elite, they would sit outside in the atrium and just get the scraps that were left over. Essentially, 
Corinthian classism and socialism and socialitism had permeated the church, and Paul was determined to root it out. What was at stake? What was at stake? What was at stake was the unity of the church. Turn with me to chapter 10 in 1 Corinthians. Let's just turn back a page or two. Let's look at this. Chapter 10, verses 16 and 17. Paul says this. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, it is, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. Amen. This is the unity that's represented at the time of communion. We have one Lord that we serve, the Lord Jesus Christ. His blood is shed for us, the body of Christ. His body is broken. And Paul, Paul speaking to the unity. And so when there's all these divisions and classism and social elitism and preferences of different people, that totally goes against the whole thing, theme of unity in the body of Christ. He would say in, in the rest of uh, Corinthians that, hey, there one there's one body but many members. Somebody's an eye. Somebody's an ear. We all need one another. The body cannot say there's one part that it doesn't need. We all like all the, all the parts of our body, don't we? You can't get up and say, well, the foot can't say, well, I'm not going anywhere today. I'm just going to stay in bed, so you're not going anywhere either because I'm the foot. That's not the case. He goes on to verses 23 to, 23, 23 to 26, and I call this the revectoring. There are times where we need to be refocused, realigned, and, and reminded of who we are and why we are and how we got here. Jesus told Peter, he says, you, you don't need a complete bathing, but you just need a, a periodic foot washing. And sometimes that's what we need. We don't need to be saved all over again, but we need to, to be realigned and we need to repent and come back to where God wants us to be. And so Paul has to revector them. Verse 23, for I received from the Lord what I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. We're real familiar with that passage being read when it's communion time. But I think we need to delve into this just a little bit more. Paul is getting to the true purpose of the Lord's Supper, honoring the Lord by remembering what he did for us. We need to remember that we didn't get saved on our own. In fact, we didn't want anything to do with Christ. We are rebels at heart, and he chose us not because of anything that we've done, 
but out of his grace and out of his sovereign will, he chose us. Somebody said, why did God choose me? Answer, because he wanted to. No, God did not look down through time and see who would choose him or see who would be a good candidate. Out of his sovereign will, uninfluenced by anything human, he took counsel with himself and said, I'll choose this one, this one, and this one. We call that the doctrine of election, and we cannot comprehend how God chooses to do that, right? But here we see that he reminds us that Jesus said, this is my body which is broken for you. His body is our access. We get to see how we get to Christ. Think about this. On the, when Jesus was crucified, and Matthew says in Matthew 27, around verse 50 to 51, that he cried out with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. And then within the temple, there's this, there's this huge curtain that divided the holy of holies, the, 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 the part of the temple where the presence of God resided. Now we know God is omnipresent, but God had specified that this was the most holy part of this temple and that no one can come into that part except the high priest on the day of atonement. And they say that this curtain was about 60 feet tall and about four inches thick. Can you imagine a piece of material that large and that strong. But the Bible says that when Jesus died, that, cur that curtain was ripped in two. Amen. Who ripped that curtain? God ripped that curtain. Look at this. Hebrews uh, chapter 10, verse nine, 19 and 20 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. We get access to Christ, to the graces of God, through the literal torn body of our Savior. Ephesians chapter 1, 7 through 10 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. This is how we're saved, and this is what we need to be mindful of when we're at the Lord's table. Amen? Look at this. This, this, is, this is a rich text of Scripture. Verse 8, for which he lavished upon us, I'm in Ephesians chapter 1, I'm sorry, and all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, all through the shed blood of Christ, that the blood is what ratifies everything that we have in the new covenant, in the New Testament, which is Christ himself. Amen. You know, Jesus was walking on the road to Emmaus and he was talking to them and they, they noticed something was different about this guy because he had veiled himself so they didn't actually know who he was because this was post-resurrection. And the Bible says that he expounded on everything from Genesis to Malachi, all about himself. Everything in this word is about him. Jesus would rebuke the Pharisees when he would say, you search the scriptures for it. You think that in them you have eternal life, but they are they that speak of me. 
everything that we do as a church when we come together, whether it's the Lord's Supper, whether it's teaching, preaching, everything and everything about us is focused on the person, the man, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the mediator of the new covenant. Peter would say this about his blood in, in Peter chapter and. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, knowing you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So when these Corinthians come and they, they're, they're just making folly or mockery of the Lord's table, they are literally making a fool of Christ and his broken body and shed blood. But for us, that not, ought not to be. And in my favorite book of the Bible, Hebrews, chapter 9, 11, and 12 says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, then through a greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of bulls or calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Get this picture. Christ enters into the most holy place, heaven itself, into the highest temple there is in the heavens, in the, in the presence of very God, purchasing our redemption, our salvation with his own blood. That should be our focus at the Lord's table. He, like I said, he is the media, mediator of the new covenant. So when you get a chance, I, I want to recommend you go back and read Hebrews 8, chapter 8 through chapter 9. It's such rich language there that talks about all the workings of what Christ did. When we, when we go back to the Gospels and we see his crucifixion and understanding all that he did, that really gets unpacked in Hebrews I mean, it really breaks it down and it goes back to the understanding of the sacrificial system and how, like John the Baptist said, when he saw Jesus coming, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, how all that was pointing to Christ. And they didn't have all the knowledge that we have. They didn't have the Gospels written. They didn't have the book of Hebrews. They didn't have all these references to know what we know now. What a... Amen. I love what this quote by John Piper, he says this, in order for Jesus to suffer and die, he had to plan it ahead of time. Remember, he's always existed. He was there in the creation. When God said, let us make man in our image, who was that? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So for Jesus to die, to pay, our, pay the penalty for our sins, he, he, had to be, he had to become human. Piper says he couldn't die because he was immortal. He didn't have a body, yet he wanted to die. So he planned the whole thing by clothing himself with a body so he could get hungry and weary and get sore feet. The incarnation is the preparation of nerve endings for the nails, the preparation of a brow for thorns to press through. He needed to have a broad back so that there was a place for the whip. He needed to have a place for his feet, for the spikes. He needed to have a side so that there was a place for the sword to go in. 
He needed fleshy cheeks so that Judas would have a place to kiss and that there would be a place for the spit to run down that the soldiers put on him. He needed a brain and a spinal column with no vinegar and no gall so that the exquisiteness of the pain would be fully felt. Piper goes on to say, I just plead with you, when you're reading the Bible and you read water toy texts like he loved you and he gave himself for you, that you wouldn't go too fast over it. Linger, linger, linger and plead with him that your eyes would be opened. We come to verses 27 to 32, the warning. Paul says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. We ought to examine ourselves. That's a great time. I, I know growing up the times when we go to church and we take communion and many of the churches I've gone through during my times as a believer, most churches pause and say, just take a moment, reflect, think about your walk. I mean, you, aside from God, you know your walk more better than anybody else. Why? Because you know your thoughts. We, we wouldn't want anybody else to know all of our thoughts, wouldn't we? But we know them. And we know where, what's in our hearts. And we need to ask God to help us to understand and to know even our own hearts because sometimes without, through our sin, it could be a bit mysterious if not confusing. And before we partake in the Lord's table, there may be some things that we need to repent of. There may even be a time where we let the cup pass that Sunday because I need to go back and ask that brother for forgiveness. I need to go back and ask my wife for forgiveness. Let's take this time seriously. This, this is not a time to play with as we approach the Lord's table and we consider his broken body and shed blood. We had to examine ourselves. Uh, he says in, in, in the next letter, second letter to Corinthians in 13, 5, Examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. That's first criteria. Are you even saved? Do you truly know Christ? Have you bowed your knees to him as your Savior and Lord? If not, the Lord's table is not for you. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? This aspect as I studied this, it wasn't as simple. I think I've probably read over this and just glazed over so much of this. And so this was a real challenge, this study. And you said to the Lord, oh, preacher, on the Lord's Supper. Oh, yeah, okay, broken body, shed blood. Yeah, okay. It's a lot more to it. And so, I, you know, I was looking at this. And I said, what is he talking about, about discerning the body? Discerning the body. And... I got a little help from a commentator. 
and I think this is probably pretty accurate. To examine oneself means to examine one's compliance with the covenant as reflected in their ways of relating to the other members of the community and to discern the body of Christ must include recognizing that those other members of the community represent Christ himself for whom Christ chose to give up his life and shed his blood. So that, that totally brings a whole new dimension when, I, when I'm thinking of examining myself. Okay, what about my life? And what, have I been praying? Have I been in my word? Have I been loving to my wife? Uh, what, what, what about all those things? Have I been a diligent uh, worker on my job? Honest day's work for honest day's pay. And you're reviewing all these aspects of your life, you're examining yourself. And then here, a whole nother facet that it's also concerning how I view the other members of the body whom Christ's body was broken and his blood was shed for so that when we come together, there's not a situation like these folks in Corinth where all the focus is on me and my gluttony and, and getting what I want and disregard for everyone else. That's a sobering thought. It's not just about, hey, my relationship with God, but really, my relationship with God, some of the telltale signs is how I treat other people. The Bible says that we should, we should render good to all men, especially those of the household of faith, amen? And how do we think about one another? So we have art in our heart when we come to church and we got an issue with somebody, then we probably, may, maybe, maybe we don't take communion that Sunday. Then lastly, in verses 33 to 34, the reminder. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will, when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. And so, contrary to everything that they have been doing, Paul says, hey, wait. Go, speaking back to that unity, the time of the, of the Lord's Supper, the Lord's table is a time of unity. It's a time where we all do this together. And, and we, we're not having private meals where we're just being gluttons and we're drinking up all the wine. And I'm thinking, when I read that part about being drunk, I says, wow, they, they drank up all the communion wine. They, they, people couldn't even take communion. These folks, they, they got there a little later and these folks are already drunk, drank up all the wine. I mean, wow. That, that's, they, they weren't thoughtful at all. Boy, and I, and I think about the various scriptures that very just speak to how we ought to think of and treat one another. 1 John 3, 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our life for the brothers. Is that our attitude? And then Philippians 2, where it talks about Jesus, while he was God, he didn't consider it his place of God a place to keep. But he forfeited that right and he took upon himself the form of a servant. And then Paul goes on saying, he's talking about this, do, do nothing, out of self, nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but esteem one another as greater than yourselves. Boy, I think that one point will fix a lot of relationships. Think about it. Whether it's marriage, whether it's brothers and sisters, whether it's other family members, think about, just think about that for a second. Esteem one another 
as greater than yourself. If we're all thinking of one another as more important, is there going to be, I think there are going to be so many issues minimized. I mean, sometimes, you know, husbands and wives, we have issues and no marriage is perfect. And sometimes we go to counseling. I'll tell you what, if we just did that, you may not even have to go to counseling. If a husband esteemed his wife is more important and greater than himself, a wife's esteeming the husband more important and greater than herself, that'll fix a whole lot. That'll fix a whole lot. Romans 12.10, love one another with brotherly affections. Outdo one another in showing honor. King James says, showing preference to one another. That's, all we, that's how we ought to be. And especially when we think about coming together as a church, as a body, and we're coming to the Lord's table, and this is a time where we're unified, and Paul's talking about this one cup, Christ's blood, this one bread, his broken body, which is broken for every member of the body of Christ. There's no, there, there is no elitism in Christ. And if you're like me and you, you think about where you come from and what God has forgiven you for and what he's redeemed you from and the fact that your destiny is now heaven for eternity and not hell, you can't have any pride. You can't feel like you're better than somebody else. And, you know, growing up, I, I remember my, my, my grandmother and my parents would just say simple things to us out of the Bible, like treat other people the way you want to be treated yourself. That resolves a whole lot. And, and sometimes I have to even think, like, regarding my wife, I, I want to say a certain thing and I'm upset about something. And it's like the Lord says, hmm, is that honoring me? How are you thinking about her? She, she's my daughter. I, I, I died for her. Is that how you would want her to treat you? And a lot of times that, that stuff doesn't come out because I'm like, okay, Lord, thank you. Thank you for the rebuke. And, and, and that's, that's this whole walk, how God corrects us, right? And so Paul loved this church. He founded the church in the midst of all that wickedness. And he wanted nothing more than to see them conform to the image of Christ and to be the people to God and to one another that he wanted them to be. And may that be our testimony as a church, whether it's Mayest Church up here in Denver or Mesa Hill Bible's church, my church back in Colorado Springs or whatever church you go to. May that be our attitude towards one another. And when we come together to celebrate and to remember what Christ has done for us, remember he just didn't do it for, for me. He did it for every member of his body. And he put us in the same body, just like God puts us in the particular family we're in. At the time we were born, in the country and state and city in which we live, you, you didn't choose that. And we didn't choose him, but he chose us, and he put us in his body. And we're to serve him and serve one another, remembering the Lord's death. We, we, when, we take, when we take the Lord's Supper, we're proclaiming, we're preaching that Jesus is coming back that he came, that he was crucified, died, buried, resurrection, resurrected, and he ascended, and he's coming back. And he's going to set all things in order. So one more thing I want to say to you on unity, because I'm very, 
grieved by this and concerned by what I see going on in, in our society. And I'm not going to get into any details. But suffice it to say that there are things going on, and, and we have to remember that the whole world lies under the power of the evil one, that, that the world is under the sway of the prince of the power of the air. When you read Ephesians 2 um, and go, go through verse 1, it says, we were dead in trespasses and sins in which we used to walk according to Satan, right? That's, the whole world is under that right now still. But there are forces in the world under Satan's power that are seeking to destroy the church of God. And, I, and I'm talking about the church of God worldwide. I'm not talking about a particular church here or there. And they, they want to rip us apart. Satan would like nothing more than disunity and disintegration of the church of Jesus Christ. But Jesus said that the gates of hell would not prevail against this church. But I'm saying this because I want us to be mindful. And when we're told to divide over things of, of, things of the world, we ought to reject that and cling to one another. Because as we get near, nearer to the end times when Jesus is going to come back, we're going to face trial and tribulation. The church is going to become more and more persecuted. It's already started, but it's going to become more and more persecuted. And you know what? Those that are not truly saved, that are not truly in the body of Christ, they're not going to stand around for it. God is allowing, I believe, the church to be weeded out. Those of us that are truly in him will remain, and we're going to need one another more than ever. We really are. It's coming. It's coming. You see some of the laws being enacted. This sermon today was hate speech. It was hate speech. And everything about what we represent is hated by the world, by the flesh, and by the devil. I got my brother here, uh, Robert Gray, a uh, street preacher. Uh, he often goes out preaching, teaching. He's out in front of plan Planned Parenthood trying to persuade people that what's inside of them that they're getting ready to abort is, is actually a person made in God's image. And this brother's attacked constantly. He's been punched. He's been spit upon. You know, when I think about my little feelings getting hurt, and I think about people like Robert, I'm like, quit acting like a little girl. I'm saying this to myself. But I say all that to say that when you stand up for Christ, you're going to be attacked. It's coming. It's coming. It's already here, right, Robert? So, uh, Robert, a good man to talk to. You want to learn more about that. He's got some great YouTube videos on there about, you know, what he's doing in his cross-country ministry. And I really thank God because he's an encouragement. And also, I'm very convicted when I think about Robert because I'm like, man, I need to step up. I'm not doing enough. So anyway, I'm going to stop there, Emmaus. Uh, thank you for allowing me to share the word of God with you today. I pray that the Holy Spirit may have applied it to your hearts and lives and that you would be encouraged by it, uh, not because I'm a great orator or speaker, but because it's the word of God. And so uh, we are getting ready to partake in uh, the Lord's table and have communion. So I want to ask you to just take a moment and maybe just close your eyes for a second and just, just examine yourself and ponder on your walk with the Lord and ask God to speak to you. There's, there's something in your life that he's not pleased with. Ask him to show that to you. And also be encouraged because... 
no matter what we do, we belong to him. That's not a license to sin. I think about Peter, how bad he blew it. And yet the Lord, the Bible says the Lord restored him. And the Lord restores each and every one of us when we mess up. We just come to him and repent and turn to him. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus. He's the reason why we're here. Lord, you didn't have to come down here and to suffer and die in our place. And yet, you chose to because of your agape love, the love of choice. You didn't see anything in us that prompted you to come simply but that you loved us of your own accord. And Lord, when I think about how you were treated, and I think about often even how I live before you, I'm ashamed. Lord, when I think about what Isaiah said, that not only were you, you beaten beyond recognition, you weren't even... You didn't even look human after what the soldiers had done to you. And yet you knew all that beforehand and you did it. You came down and you did it because of our, your love for us. Help us to walk worthy of the vocation by which we are called. Convict our hearts where we are awry, where we are in error. Help us to be a, a body of unity that's drawn together especially in these last evil days where we're really going to need one another and those that are truly of the faith are in the way. God, we're going to have to follow you closer than ever. I pray for this church. I thank you for the heart of the pastors, the leadership, and, and every member here. It, they're a small body, but I'm just so glad to come up here and share with these brothers and sisters, and I just sense their love for you. So I pray a blessing upon them. Bless them to not only grow in number, but to grow in stature spiritually. Be glorified here, I pray. May this church be a beacon in this, uh, the darkness of the city of Denver. Be glorified, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.